Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 37 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the confines and the fences of institutional religion. This is the 12th episode of season number two of the podcast, and our guest for this episode is my friend Chet Pritchett, and our topic today is environmental justice. Chet and I actually come from opposite sides of the Ohio River in the small communities of St. Mary's, West Virginia, where I grew up in Newport, Ohio, across the river, where we both were raised in the shadow of industrial, chemical, and power-generating facilities that dot the landscape of major river valleys throughout Appalachia. It was that experience, as well as advocating for justice against mountaintop removal coal mining, that cemented Chet's passion for environmental justice issues. Chet now serves as the development officer for the West Virginia Rivers Coalition, an organization with a 30-plus year history of being a voice for West Virginia's exceptional rivers and streams, advocating for clean water and healthy communities, thus combining Chet's passions for the environment for justice, and for Appalachian culture. Chet and I had a fairly wide-ranging conversation that ties environmental justice to its many intersection in social and economic and racial and political contexts, and a conversation that also touches on, maybe most importantly, how we both revel in the spiritual practice of hammocking. So please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my friend Chet Pritchett. You know, communities of color, communities that are poor, um, people who are differently able are affected more often than not by environmental degradation in ways that white, middle-class, able-bodied people are not. Our guest for this episode of the podcast is a good friend of mine, Chet Pritchett. Chet and I have known each other. Actually, we've only known each other for a few years, but it seems like we've gotten to know each other pretty well in a, in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and, and Chet's here with us today to talk about um, some issues around environmental justice. Um, so I'm really excited for this conversation. We've been trying to make this happen for a while now, and, and so I'm really glad that we can we can finally sit down and, and do the interview. So welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast chat. Hey, thanks, Joe. I think uh, the reason why we feel we we know each other so well for so long is we have commingled roots. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we have we yeah. have many, many, many mutual friends and acquaintances. Uh, yeah, very, very. And <clears throat> we grew up in like almost the same town at, at different times, town, but yeah, exactly. like on different sides of the Ohio River. So I, I call that a fake border. It is. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's very much um, an artificial construct. So, well, Chet, why don't you um, just kind of give us a, a short little introduction, tell the folks who you are and what you do, and uh, and we'll get into this conversation about environmental justice. Yeah. So, uh, so a little bit about me. I, I identify as, uh, as Appalachian. I identify as queer. Um, I identify as um, as uh, an activist, I identify as a person of faith. Uh, uh, some of the discussion we'll have might uh, center around uh, what part of faith I identify with, yeah. uh, but um, which is which is different depending on the day in some in some situations. Our, our deconstructing but, audience is going to love your story. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so this is uh, so that's who I am. Um, uh, I, I, as Joe said, I grew up on the Ohio River um, in the shadows of, uh, of a power of coal burning power plant and, and of chemical factories. And um, that is uh, that is my story and where where my motivation comes from uh, in the work that I do. And actually, it's what motivates my my faith exploration. And it, it's what motivates um just who I am as a person. And so, um, and it has for many years. And I think that's part of a, an interesting, uh, circuitous route of my faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you know, I mean, you're obviously, you're not here as a representative of your organization, but you're actually working in, um, you know, f for issues of, of clean water, water quality kinds of stuff with the, 
the West Virginia Rivers Coalition currently, right? So right, yeah. yeah. So I've been with West Virginia Rivers for a few months. Um, it's it's an interesting story of of my my route to West Virginia Rivers. Um, when I was in college, I went to West Virginia Wesleyan College, and when I was in college. In the late 90s, that was a time when we were becoming more and more aware of the practice of mountaintop removal, um, coal extraction, and um, that practice which uh, basically blows the top off a mountain, you get the coal out of the coal seam, and then you take all the dirt and rock and and uh, sediment that was on top of the coal seam and you dump it into the, to the valley below so it makes a, a flat kind of plateau. And so when you do that, um, you put that sediment into uh, rivers and streams and yeah. it harms the habitats of the, the fish and the wildlife that are, that are there. So, um, so in the late nineties, I, I became aware of this and um, met some folks who were, who were engaged in um, some activism around this. And so first got involved with the West Virginia rivers coalition because a friend of mine in college was interning with them and uh, eventually became a volunteer with them. I, it's where I learned how to stuff envelopes and, <laughs> and fundraise and do all those things that we uh, we know about in churches and nonprofits. And um, and so I, I joke that, you know, I've come full circle um, working with the Rivers Coalition, specifically in their development arm, helping um, helping raise awareness about the organization, but also raising funds at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and so um, so I'm clear that I'm not speaking as as today as a representative of the organization, but it's part of who I am and, and the work that I do. Yeah. That's that full circle um, work. That That's so interesting. I, I, I've been thinking about how, you know, we, we grew up on opposite sides of the Ohio River. And, and when I was growing and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know, 15 or 20 years older than you, but <clears throat> When I was growing up, I can like we lived. Our house was right on the river. Like yep. our our, actually we called it our front yard. Everybody else, you know, their front faces the road. Our back faced the road, and our front faced the river. But um, like it was right there, and we were not allowed to go in the river. Like it was because it was so dirty. Like it's better now, but it's still like <laughs> I I wouldn't spend a lot of time swimming in the Ohio River right now. You know, I just. I wouldn't. Um, there was a reason that we did catch and release when we went fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you didn't want to eat that nasty stuff. No. Yeah. So. No, not at all. You know, my parents' house, uh, uh, again, right along the Ohio river. Um, every morning I would wake up and I'd look out the, the window and I would see the Willow Island power plant. Um, and it's the smokestacks and the cooling towers. And, um, you know, Growing up where we did, you know, friends, uh, parents, you know, that's where they worked. That's where they they learned they made a living. Um, and, you know, we didn't question that much. Um, and, you know, as I got older and uh, would return home, uh, I would notice that the side of my parents' house, they had, you know, kind of wood siding. Um, and one side of the house, the siding was, was uh, disintegrating literally disintegrating but it was only one side of the house and i'll let you guess which side of the house yeah that yeah 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 and you know i keep a i keep a picture of that that house the the house has been torn down now um mostly because of the dilapidation of the of the siding but um you know i keep a picture of that on my desk because that's what drives me yeah is to recognize that um you know, and if that's doing that to the side of a house, think of what that's doing to our bodies. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, and right now in, in the West Virginia legislature, you know, there are some um, there are some uh, standards of health that they're they're trying to, to change uh, so that would allow um, chemical manufacturers along the Ohio River and, and the Canal River as well. Um, to increase the amount of toxins they can legally release uh, into the rivers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of those chemical factories are right upstream from St. Mary's. Um, they're right across the river from my mother. Um, and uh, as, we, as we think about um, what our call to be stewards of creation are, um, you know, we're, we're faced with this challenge of how do we care for the environment and how do we care for a community at the same time yeah uh, and for for many there's been this kind of this this idea set up that 
um, that it's either the environment or the economy. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, like that tension between. Yeah, and you know, and yeah. I think that's where I think that's where we we come to understand, like if we don't have clean water, if we don't have clean air, we won't have healthy communities. You know, if we don't have diversified economies, if we don't have um, a plan in place to transition to um, uh, economies that that don't grow off the illness of, of the earth and the illness of the people who inhabit the earth, um, you know, we're not, we're not, we're always going to have that dichotomy. And I don't think, you know, I, a friend of mine jokes that I, it's not an either or, but it's a damn both and. Um, oh, and I like and that. It's that, that both and, um, you know, is, is damning yeah. <laughs> because, because for so long we have been taught that things have to be either or, you know, it's, you know, I, I stretch back to kind of this, um, you know, platonic thought of, you know, things are, are either good or bad. You know, things are either male or female. Things are either, um, you know, they're either or. And no, folks, we live in this world that that is a both and. You know, um, God created the heavens and the earth. It wasn't God created the heavens or the earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the first humans were created, um, both and, you know, that, that, um, and scientifically, you know, X chromosomes and Y chromosomes is both and, mm. um, and, and I think as we, as we try and unlearn the either or and, and, immerse ourselves in the both and um, we come to, we come to a different place. We come to a different experience of, of the natural world and we come to a different experience of the, the social world the, that we, that we exist in. And I think that's a really, um, you know, that's where kind of this, this concept of, of intersectionality, um, right. you know, intersectionality was a term um, I believe it was Kimberly Crenshaw um, who uh, was a, a African American educator and uh, philosopher who said that that you know for African American women specifically, like you can't take off the hat of being black and put on the hat of being a woman, right. or you can't take off the hat of being a woman to be black or queer um, or or differently able, like. We wear all of these hats at the same time, and I give thanks for that that wisdom, you know. And and for me, when it comes to the work of uh, environmental justice, you know, and I want to I want to be very clear that environmental justice is different than um, environmentalism or environmental, you know, eco just eco theology or um, environmental ethics. Like environmental justice is really clear that um, that the state of our environment affects all those hats that we wear. Right. Yeah. And so and so in many ways, um, you know, the the environmental world for so many years was a pretty white dominated realm. Um, and I'm you know, I own that. Um, but ecological justice and environmental justice in that realm, you know, communities of color, communities that are poor, um, people who are differently able are affected more often than not by environmental degradation in ways that white, middle class, able bodied people are not. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think of of the author, um, oh, his name just escaped me. Um, Don't you love when that happens in the middle of an interview? <laughs> I know. His name is escaping me. Uh, he wrote Ordinary Resurrections, Jonathan Kozel. So Jonathan Kozel is a, is a journalist 
um, who who really took an interest in um, a community in the Bronx, Mott Haven neighborhood, um, mostly African-American, Hispanic, um, you know, public housing projects. Um, and guess where the city of New York wanted to build um, an incinerator in their neighborhood? Yeah. Um, and, and that story for me was really, um, really formational in helping my understanding, you know, let's look at Appalachia, you know, why aren't chemical companies going into places like Connecticut or Rhode Island? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, here, here is a, a place where extractive industry has, um, you know, multiple times, um, come in from the outside and basically colonize um, our our hills and valleys and waters and streams. You know whether it was, you know that first extractive industry of salt, mm-hmm. um, whether it was the timber industry which clear cut most of West Virginia. You know whether it was the coal industry, whether it's the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, the chemical factories, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason we don't swim in the Ohio River. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a reason it smells really weird when you drive down, you know, Route 7 south of Marietta toward Parkersburg. Um, there's a reason it smelled really weird when the carbon black factory was was there near Waverly. You know, like, yeah. if it smells weird, it probably is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, so using, you know, using all of that knowledge of how how that is um, is traumatic, um, you know, our, our bodies remember trauma. In fact, our bodies remember trauma generationally. Um, and so I think of, of how um, not only do the bodies of those who have experienced, uh, who have experienced slavery, uh, who uh, who have experienced uh, immigration and detention, um, experience the same traumas at a different le- with more layers than right, the trauma right. that maybe white Appalachians feel. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so there's so there's that level of communal trauma that takes place with environmental degradation as well. Um, and so, you know, so we see all of those, those kinds of things. And when you ask people about when you, when I, when I tell people that I'm from Appalachia, um, and then I have to, you know, explain that Ohio is part of Appalachia. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that, uh, and that, you know, one side of the river isn't very different from the other side of the river, except by, you know, who the governor is. Right. Um, you know, I, I, the first thing people say to me is, oh, it's so beautiful there. And, and I get a little, I get a little twitch um, because, you know, to me, it's just, it's just what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's home. It's, um, you know, and it is beautiful. And, you know, the, the other thing that's beautiful are the people. And so, you know, uh, you know then people slide into those, those jokes and those, uh, those stereotypes. And I'm like, I don't understand how you can say one thing about the land that formed the people Mm. and then say something completely different about the people. Wow. You know, and so, um, so for me, that's a really, that's a really um, difficult struggle, you know, to hear that. And then to know that, um, that leaders, whether that's in business or, um, or, government um are taking steps to to make it not so beautiful (laughs) you know and are taking steps to say that the people aren't beautiful as well and so um sometimes you know i think the the struggle in appalachia is that we we forget that our greatest resource is actually you know the people yeah um and and um and that that resource combined with our natural resources hold a lot of power. Um, and so finding ways to empower the powerful um, 
is is central. And you know, I, I've been reflecting on this. Um, I've, I've been terminating and preaching at a <laughs> at a screen later today for a worship service on Sunday. <laughs> you nice, know, kind of a, nice. this weird situation that we're in. And you know, I've been ruminating on this kind of this part of Matthew where um, it's not the nice warm, fuzzy Jesus that we, we always like, you know, and uh, a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, um, I volunteer to fall, to follow you. And Jesus is like, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but you know, humanity has no place to lay its head. And I feel like, you know, Jesus attempts to create an either or there um, but at the same time, Jesus is saying, like, this world isn't normal. Mm. And like, if, you know, the, the, the reign of God isn't normal. Um, and so if you want to do normal things like sign up to volunteer, um, that's great. But I'm about a radical reorientation. Yeah. And yeah. so, and so, you know, with that radical reorientation, um, you know, how's it change? And one of the things, you know, I, I have a seminary degree. I'm seminary trained, but not ordained. And um, one of the, you know, I, my my master's thesis was on uh, ecological ethics. And one of the the pieces that I came to in looking at all these strands of how Catholicism and the various strands within Catholicism and Protestantism and the various strands within Protestantism look at um, ecological ethics you know, is on one level, it's a, it's a personal commitment, you know, um, how do we as people who follow Jesus, um, or people of other faiths, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think Jesus is the only answer in this realm. Um, you know, how do we as individuals commit to, uh, life-changing practices and radical reorientation? You know, and so, you know, for me, in some ways, that's been a commitment to um, reduce my carbon footprint. Uh, and so having a somewhat energy efficient car. When I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years, I made the commitment to not have a car um, and to utilize public transportation, public transportation that went into poor and minority communities Um and I will die on this hill that we need to expand public transportation mm, in this yeah. nation. Um, and, and I hope our, our federal officials are listening and, and understand that. Because when you move to Appalachia, you're required to have a car. And all of the things that come along with those things of owning a car, insurance, gasoline, maintenance, yeah. Um you know, uh, and I'm blessed right now to live in a town that there is some public transportation. Um, but I think of people, you know, friends and relatives that live outside in a rural area. Um, you know, there's no strong public transportation system. Um, and to the point yeah. that you need a car to get to the public transportation. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so how do we expand that? How do we expand um, the possibilities to, um, to do that? Uh, I think is a is a good challenge to put before us. But you know, back to the personal um, personal commitment. You know, that's recycling. That's reducing. You know, all of the pa- buying things that have tons of packaging. Um, it's it's the commitment to composting. It's the commitment to using you know LED light bulb. You know, energy efficient light bulbs. Um, it's, the, it's the commitment to turn off the light when you when you leave the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know those kinds of things. It's the it's the commitment to, you know, seeing if you can buy your energy from from solar and wind power. It's it's those kinds of things that are important. But that doesn't cut it. <laughs> you know, we also have to have the the political um, realm where we where we press our lawmakers to, to create laws that, that support this kind of, um, this kind of uh, environment that we want to see that support local communities and their ability to, um, to address climate change, to address, um, you know, ecological disaster. I mean, just in West Virginia um, alone in the past, you know, what, 
five years, we've seen the the um, uh, the the tank seepage uh, into the Canal River and oh, the Elk yeah, River. Yeah. Um, you know, just this last week, we saw the um, the the mine burst, the the abandoned mine burst in uh, Preston County mm-hmm. and the TNT mine there, and and the number of toxins that it sent into the Cheat River. Um, those are those are places where people, you know, if we want to talk about community health and economies, those are places where people hunt, fish, uh, kayak, swim. You know, those are where those memories are made of swimming in the going down to the swimming hole and catching crayfish and yeah, you know, all of those things, um, all those things that create family and community. Um, are being threatened by by our inability to uh, to monitor, our inability to um, to have inspections over abandoned mines, above ground storage tanks of potential pipelines that are going to cross, you know, the region. Um, you know, if we don't have that that ability to to have oversight, um, you know, those are those are what harm communities, mm. but they're also what harm, you know, the memory making uh, pieces of of life in Appalachia. Yeah, uh, and so um, so you need to have in tandem both personal responsibility and uh, and uh, political responsibility. Uh, in, in this. And, you know, in, in many ways, that's, that's not a radical idea, you know, for those who fall on a more libertarian um, spectrum. Uh, personal responsibility is an important thing. We need to have the ability to have agency over ourselves. Um, and on kind of a, a more communitarian um, perspective, like we need to be able to, to hold one another accountable, mm. both individually and corporately, um, um, for, for the ways in which we, uh, find ourselves in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you've said so many really interesting and important things there. Um, and my list of questions is completely blown out of the water now, (laughs) which is good. Like, I love it when that happens. Um, a a couple of times you used a phrase that I want to kind of come back to for just a second, because I think, I think it has some really broad implications. You talked about um, a radical reorientation, right? Um, For a long time, that's the language I've been using. um, Like when I pastored a church and when I was preaching every Sunday, um, which I don't do anymore because my community now is more of a conversation based um, um, kind of format. But when I would talk about like, especially um, when I would preach the sermon on the Mount, which to me is like the foundational bit of teaching for humanity, like Christian or not, you know, I mean, it's just foundational teaching. Um, but Jesus starts before that sermon starts, he, he says, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that word repent, you know, is the Greek is metanoia, which, which means a change of direction. And, and, and that, that term radical reorientation has become my language for repentance because I think too often, like in, in church world, we just see repentance as, oh, I'm supposed to say I'm sorry for the bad things I did mm. and try not to do those things anymore. But it's not that. It, that that's a symptom, if, if anything, right? The, our behaviors are a symptom of being wrongly oriented <laughs> to reality, you know? And, and so when we talk about like this idea of, of being a repentant people, it's not just being sorry for our, you know, so-called sins or whatever, which is another word that's so loaded. We could take an hour and talk about what that even means, but it's the, the, the if there's a sin in that it's, it's the sin of mis- of disorientation where we're not correctly oriented to reality. And I think we're maybe, and I think a lot of what you were talking about there, we're seeing that we are now finding ourselves historically in a time where people are beginning to wake up to that. Mm-hmm. That you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, when you talk about intersectionality, like I was just before we got on here this morning, I was thinking about, you know, maybe a lot of the tension that we're seeing, a lot of the like the political and cultural divisions that we're experiencing in the world now are largely because people are really resisting 
waking up to the fact that white guys don't get to define what normal is anymore. Like that's, that's kind of a microcosm, right? But, you know, we're, we're redefining the very concept of normality, which scares the crap out of people. I know, like, I get why people are resistant to it, but I, but I think a lot, it causes this tension. And I think you really articulated a lot of that, you know, in, in the world of environmental justice, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon giving platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and I'd like to recognize our master gardener-level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite streaming app. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now back to the podcast. And you know, uh, this, this idea of radical reorientation, I mean, it's so ingrained in scripture. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the Psalms, you know, my, my Hebrew Bible professor, Denise Hopkins, you know, is kind of one of, one of those experts on the Psalms. And, you know, she draws from another biblical scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who says that there's three movements in the, in the, in the canon of Psalms. And there's Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. Mm. Um, and, and Denise is really clear to use new orientation instead of reorientation. Um, because obviously something wasn't working. Yeah. In the mode of orientation, like the world is good. God loves me. This is fantastic. And then all of a sudden something happens to disorient you. And for, for the writers of the Psalms, that was Babylonian captivity. Um, you know, uh, whether they were, captives in Babylon or the remnant that remains, um, you know, there was, there was disorientation there. Um, and you can't go back to orientation. You can't be reoriented because something has happened that changes your, your perspective, your point of view. And I think right now, you know, we're, we're experiencing that, from so many levels and you, you, you just, I, I feel like you had a copy of the sermon that I'm writing right now, Joe, like <laughs> no, there is no new normal. Right. And there is no normal because what is happening is not normal. Like isolation during a pandemic is not normal. The deaths of, you know, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many more, you know, are, are, um, our headlines right now are, are about the, um, the, the death of uh, Asian women in, in Atlanta. Mm. Um, you know, all of those things are not normal. You know, uh, uh, you know uh, a gunman walking into a Bible study at Emanuel AME in Charleston, you know, in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, this is not normal. Um, you know, 500,000 plus people dying from a disease that, had measures been taken would not have been as devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is not normal. The fact that we're crying when we get a shot in our arms, not because it hurt, but because the fear and the tension has been so pent up inside us. Like that's not normal. And so we are having to find a new orientation not a reorientation. Right. Right. Because everything that led up to all of those things, Jim Crow laws, you know, uh, white supremacy, you know, on full display, um, you know, those, those things that led up to where we are as far as conversations of race. When we talk about, you know, the fact that, um, the fact that climate change right now 
scares more young people than anyone in our generations, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Um, because because young people don't know what to what is going to be left for them. And so leaving a legacy is really important um, because what we are creating for another generation um, is messier than what previous generations left for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a struggle because when we, when we think of, of, uh, of the idea of being progressive, um, you know, progress is the root of progressive, but what is progress? Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting thought. Uh, and that's something I'm going to, that I reflect on, you know, not nearly enough and sometimes too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it, you know, th- there's and when, a sense. when does progress harm? Right. Right. Yeah. Cause you I know? think there's a sense that we often define progress really is it's, it's really just doing the same old things, maybe in new ways but, right. you know, I mean, even in ter- like, even if you just take the word progress and apply it just to capitalism, like progress within capitalism is destructive. <laughs> you know, I mean, progress in capitalism is why, you know, mountaintops are being blown off. Exactly. And toxins yeah. are being released into rivers and streams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you think of progress in kind of a theological churchy world um you know sometimes you know people say well you know baby steps increments that's progress but is it um i i you know i'm unabashedly wesleyan methodist um i'll say something and one of my friends is like you're so methodist (laughs) (laughs) And, and at first I wondered what she meant about that. You know, she's of the Episcopalian ilk. And, you know, I, I thought, what does she mean by that? And she's just like, every way you approach things is so Methodist. <laughs> but when, like, when you're swimming in it, you don't realize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the old, this is water paradigm, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't, you don't realize just like, just like our whiteness, just like our, just like white supremacy, just yeah. like sexism, just like homophobia. Like when you're swimming in it, you don't realize it. Mm. Um, and so uh, one of the, one of my tasks over the past few years is to, to become more self-aware of, you know, when I'm swimming in it and what, you know, whether that's, you know, when it comes to racism or when it comes to, um, my own gender when it comes to my own um, like view of the world. Um, and I'll say moving from Washington, DC, where it's a pretty, pretty diverse place um, to back to Appalachia was, was a struggle for me. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of, to kind of find those spaces. But one of the things I'm really, really clear about and, and that I shout from the mountaintops, and this is, this is why the work of diversity, inclusion and, and equity and environmental justice are really, really important is, you know, when, when we're talking about that in Appalachia, people are like, well, there aren't, there aren't many African-American communities to work with, or there's not many Hispanic communities to work with, or, you know, and my response to that is, there are, you know, religious yeah. diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity. Um, it's all throughout Appalachia. But the people who look like you and me need to seek it out. Yeah, yeah. And need to help provide a voice and find out how we can be allies in this work. And that's really that's really tough um, because, you know, you and I look around and everyone looks like us. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, everyone, you know, dresses like us, everyone thinks like us. Um, and, and I think Appalachia is so much more diverse than that. Um, you know, I, I think of, I think of religious diversity in Appalachia, which could be an entirely other show. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we, we like to think that Appalachia is, is evangelical Christian, um, and, uh, with, with a strong mainline Protestant, you know, 
but the the presence of of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and um, and you know Judaism within Appalachia, you're like these are resilient communities. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's I think that's the other part that uh, environmental justice plays a really strong role in building healthy communities and building resilient communities. Um, you know the folks the folks up in Preston County knew unfortunately knew what to do to start bringing Muddy Creek and and the Cheat River back into you know, a somewhat healthier place Mm -hmm. after, after last week, you know, or two weeks ago, gosh, where'd this week go? Um, (laughs) But um, by the time this airs, it'll be a month and a half ago. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, So, so like, how do we build resiliency um, through environmental justice? And, and part of that resiliency is, is helping communities that have been honestly forgotten Mm. Uh, both by the state government, by federal government, and by environmental movements, um, by churches. Um, yeah. You know, like, how do we help build resiliency in that time? And uh, a, a reflection that gets into, you know, kind of the other part of my identity of being a queer person um, who... Uh, who, while my identity is clearly Wesleyan Methodist, uh, I joke that I'm Method-ish. Um, <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> uh, because I, I have, I turned in my membership to the United Methodist denomination. Um, I still hold membership in a local church, but um, none of my tithing uh, supports a denomination that um, doesn't see value uh, in my ministry, that doesn't mm-hmm. see value in the ministry of my my friends and loved ones um, that doesn't see the value in affirming love in a um, in a ceremony of of marriage mm-hmm. um, that doesn't see that doesn't see our you know says that you know all people are of sacred worth but yeah you know it's a it's a it's a, a either or not a both and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I part of that. Um, Part of that uh, identity um, also uh, recognizes that um, that there's no normal, right? You know that we've we've been disoriented and we're having to have a new orientation, um, and and that that new orientation uh, might mean finding community in very different ways. Right. Um, and, and being resilient and, you know, at the, at the beginning of this pandemic, you know, a little over a year ago, I, I was reflecting on how queer communities would find resiliency during the COVID pandemic. Um, as we did during the AIDS epidemic of the eighties and nineties. You know, who is worthy of a hospital bed? Who is worthy of a funeral? Who is worthy of medication? Who is worth just who is worthy of health insurance? Yeah. I mean, that's uh. that's a question. You know, who is worthy of of being touched? You know, the fact that at the beginning of this pandemic, we could not touch our loved ones. Mm. And for many, we still can't. Yeah. You know, uh, the fear that, you know, obviously the virus is spread very differently from one another, but um, the, the fear of touch, the fear of companionship, I, that brought a lot of community trauma. Yeah, yeah. You know, who... Who gets a vaccine and when they get a vaccine and why they get a vaccine? Like, those are all questions. Um, And in some ways, I feel like it made queer communities more resilient. Mm. Like, we've known this before. Right, right, right. We've known this before. And, you know, then I, then I, I look back at scripture and I see, you know, Jesus saying, 
like the world that you know here is not the reign of God. Mm. Um, and so you can participate in the reign of God here and now. And that's where I think of expressions of resistance. Um, the fact that that we saw large cities and small towns come together in the middle of a pandemic to declare that black lives matter. Yeah. Like that's, that's resilience. You know, the, the fact that, that, you know, Asian American communities have so felt the sting of racism whether it's from the Chinese Exclusion Act to Japanese internment camps to the rise in Asian American hate crimes simply because of rhetoric from an executive office. Yeah. There's resiliency, but resiliency doesn't mean that that trauma still doesn't exist. Right, right. You know, I still feel the pain Of, a, of an epidemic that barely touched me. You know, I, I came of age at a time where, where infection rates for HIV were going down. Um, and that today my friends who live with HIV have medication. Yeah. Because of, the status of the United States and the ability to access that medication. And I see my friends who are, who are Korean and Filipino and, and Chinese and Japanese and Southeast Asian, you know, I, I see and I feel and I hear their pain right now. Yeah. Um, with my, with my black and brown siblings, when white national Christian evangelical terrorists kill their friends and family. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, and there's no other, there's no other way to put it. And so, um, so be gentle with each other. (laughs) Um, You know, you can be, you can be powerful um, and still be gentle with each other. Yeah. And so I think that's the the other thing that we learn from from environmental justice is is we learn how to work in coalition with each other. We learn how to be gentle with one another um, and we learn how to be powerful together. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think my my conversation would be um, would be complete if I didn't talk about talk about spiritual practices in in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 Lent. I don't know if it'll still be Lent when this airs, but um, no, it'll um, be after Lent. But it'll be it'll right be after before, Lent. It'll yeah. be post Lent. It'll be right but, before uh, Earth Day, actually. So yeah. yeah. So so um, you know, for those who are are Lenten practitioners, um, you might take this on. And you know, those things that we we take on and 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 or give up during Lent don't have to end when Easter. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the that's the great thing about. Um, the, the rhythm of, of uh, life is that, that we return again to the earth, we return again to each other, and we return again to God. Um, and so um, some of the spiritual practices that, you know, simple, you know, we can talk about prayer and guided meditation. Um, I'm, a, I'm a labyrinth person, so when a labyrinth is available, I will use that for, for guided prayer. But one of, I'm going to say this, the one thing that kind of being post-denominational, post-church yeah. participant uh, the past few years is I have fallen in love with the hammock. Oh, I, you are singing my song. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have friends who they were actually moving out of, out of Appalachia to, to move to, the, the great district of Columbia and they needed to get rid of their hammock and hammock stand. And I'm like, I'll take it. Um, and that hammock has provided me this new spiritual practice. Um, and I just call it the practice of hammocking. 
And the hammock provides a new orientation on the world. You know, things that if I'm looking this way, you can't see my hands, but I'm looking forward. Um, if I'm looking forward, I don't see things on the periphery. I don't see the things that are above me. I don't see the things that are below me. And time in that hammock has helped me see the natural world in different ways. Oh, that's so interesting. It's helped me see the trees that are around my house. It's helped me see the wildlife, um, the squirrels running after each other. Um, it's helped me see and listen to the birds um, that surround me. Um, there's a amazing pileated woodpecker somewhere in my neighborhood. And because of the, the way the, the hills hold the neighborhood, it just echoes. Yeah. Um, echoes through. Um, it helps me see the clouds and the sun um, in different ways. And it helps me see um, creative human ingenuity when I see an airplane dart across the sky. Um, and it helps quiet my soul in ways that um, that are really meaningful uh, and helpful in, in reflection. And one of the interesting things um, about uh, the work that I currently do is that there's there's been some research um, into uh, charitable giving over during the pandemic, and charitable giving has gone up in environmental organizations over the past year. And the only thing that we can think of to explain it is that this pandemic has provided us an opportunity to slow down, mm. to look at the world differently, to get out in nature, to hike more, to swim more, to kayak more. And people have been attuned to that and the opportunity that has provided them. And so they're giving back to yeah. those organizations that are, that are doing that, that work. Uh, to make those spaces possible. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in this pandemic, I have lost a job. I've searched for a job, many jobs. <laughs> I have had the blessing to deepen friendships with my neighbors I have had an almost daily phone call with my mother. And if you would ask 20-year-old me, if 43-year-old me would want to talk to my mother every day, I would have called you crazy <laughs> and a liar. Um, uh, I've had the ability to journey with my mother in, in some health difficulties. Um, I've had the unexpected death of friends. Yeah. And I don't think I would be able to process all of those things if we were not in the midst of a pandemic. Hmm. Which is not to say that, you know, God sent a pandemic for good and bad. Right, right, yeah. Um, I don't believe in a puppet master God when people say, Things have, you know, everything happens for a reason. I cringe. Me too. And, um, and I, I don't believe that is the nature of the God who loves us and the God whom we trust and believe in. But I do believe that we are faced with opportunities and possibilities. And so in a world that is crying out in pain, the ability to reorient ourselves, to find new orientation, to do that radical transformation, that metanoia or in mm. Hebrew, shuv, yeah. um, you know, which literally means to turn the other way. Like it's not that, that you turn yourself around back to that starting spot. Right. Um, it's not a, it's not a new normal. Nothing is normal. And that's a, that's a, our response to that 
is really important. Yeah. And, you know, the, the piece of scripture I'm wrestling with now is, you know, after, after the Sermon on the Mount, after a few healing miracles, because, you know, you have to do, you know, what Jesus says and then what Jesus does. Right. You know, and then Jesus gathers disciples. And so they get on this boat with Jesus and a storm comes up and they're all, what the hell is this? Like, not only are they scared because there's a storm happening and it's tossing them back and forth and back and forth and they're probably getting sick. They're scared because they're like, what the hell did we do getting in a boat with this dude? Yeah. (laughs) And that in and of itself is a new orientation. Like they can't Mm. go back to the shore and pretend that nothing happened out there. Yeah. Like something is new. And so, you know, during this pandemic, during this environmental crisis that we are facing and going to be even more facing, um, you know, we cannot, we cannot go back. There's no going back. We only have to move forward. And it's our response to that difficulty that makes the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such good stuff, Chet. It's so good. <laughs> this is, this is what I say this all the time when I'm interviewing people, but like we get into these conversations and I like, I want them to go on for hours, um, <laughs> but, but ain't no one wants to listen to that. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so, you know, I, I, I was preaching it with a congregation a few weeks ago out in Oklahoma and, uh, and that's another beautiful thing about this pandemic is I've been able to do some zoom preaching and some oh, yeah. recording of sermons that, you know, I wouldn't be able to do because of, of travel and things like that. So, um, when I, you know, I'm asking the, the pastor, like, what are your expectations? Like, do, like, how long do I have? And he said, oh, you know, he's got 25 minutes. And I'm like, <laughs> No one wants to hear me talk for that long. Like if I, if I'm preaching for that long, I'm beating people over the head. Like, yeah, ain't nobody got time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely sharpened like our awareness of people's attention spans. Oh, definitely. You know, I, yeah, I've definitely. done a couple of guest sermons, you know, like pre-recorded guest sermons and, and I kind of get the same thing. Like I'll, I'll, maybe I'll watch the online church of the, you know, for a week or two before to see what they do. And like, I sit down to record and I'm like, okay, 10 minutes. Like I'm putting a timer. If I'm going over 10 minutes, I know I'm losing people. So yeah, keep it, keep it focused. Yeah. Yeah. Even even when I was preaching live though, like I was a 20 minute, like for the most part, like 20 minutes was my limit. And, but, but then you can read a room, right? You can, you get the, right the both verbal and nonverbal feedback of you better wrap this up preacher. <laughs> you know? And I'm, I'm the weirdo. Like I much prefer preaching on zoom versus pre-recorded because at least with zoom, I see faces. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and can get a little bit of verbal and or nonverbal feedback. I right. love, I love verbal and nonverbal feedback. And I don't know if that's, you know, and you don't get that much in the white church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I learned quickly. True. I learned quickly. There was uh, a sermon. I was up in uh, New England, um, and I learned very quickly that they are really the frozen chosen up there, um, because I said something about you know we were celebrating you know a anniversary of welcoming LGBTQ folks into the life of their congregation. I said, how many of you were here you know ten years ago or twenty years ago when you made this decision? And like, have, no one raised their hands. And I was like. <laughs> It's okay. You can raise your hands. And a few were very timid and they raised their hands. And I was like, wow, I have nobody's going to think you're Baptist. Go ahead. Right. I was like, wow. 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 But yeah. Well, this is such, this is such good stuff. And again, like I, I, we could just explore that. You've said so many things that like, I've got these mental notes for follow-up conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about how, the the what we have called normal uh in the past and 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 just to kind of steer back towards like environmental justice is it's so objectifying like we objectify 
one another, we objectify, especially people on the margins, um, communities on the margins. We objectify the planet. We objectify our resources. And ultimately, we objectify whatever it is we call God, right? And I've been doing a lot of thinking about that lately. Some friends and I have been in some conversation about like how so much of our institutional religion is really idolatry mm-hmm. um, because we've mm-hmm. invented a God that is not God. We, and we objectify that, but, but I think. You and know, then that filters down to how we, um, how we view the earth. Exactly. Yeah. It filters down to how we view humanity and one another. Um, that if our, that if our, you know, if our world is disposable, then people become disposable. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and how do we, how do we both in individual practices and in communal practices um, remember that? Yeah. I want to leave with one thought. Last cool. night, I, um, last night I listened to a midweek Lenten reflection at the National Cathedral um, by Reverend Anna Bladel. And Anna is a clergy person in Iowa and a very dear friend of mine, and they said, um, they they said this quote that I has been, it kept me up most of the night. Um, and that quote is from uh, a Native community organizer out of Chicago, Kelly Hayes. And Kelly said that normal is a death-making disaster. Normal is a death-making disaster. Mm-hmm. And so my prayer on this day is that we question what is normal. We question our response to normalcy. And that we sit in the fire that is our faith. We sit in the fire that is the world around us and we sit in the fire that is the world that can be. Wow. Maybe so. Wow, that's it. that feels like a really good place to wrap this up. So thanks again so much, Chet. For, oh my God, it was for, so good, Joe. Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much okay. fun. Well, as soon yeah. as as soon as I get the vaccine, we are going out for a beer. Yes, yes, please. And before yes, I move, please. which yeah, I mean, you're not story. gonna be that much further away from me than True. you are now when you move. True. So, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, so yeah, I'm one of the first things I'm going to do is um, to bring my bike up to Athens and ride. Um, and there are some. We'll go to Eclipse. Yeah, yeah. There's some sweet like breweries and and food and beer places. Eclipse right and on Little the bike Fish. Trail. I can't wait till they're open. Again. Oh yeah. So the Little Fish is hiring a bunch of people, so they're getting ready for good, a good, good. season. Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. So all right. Well, thanks again, Chet. I appreciate you being with me. Um, I, I think the folks are really going to enjoy this conversation, and um, I, I feel like we're going to have to have a follow up at some point. So sounds good. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Take care. Wow, that was such an interesting and important conversation uh, that Chet and I had. And I want to thank him again for helping us to see all of the nuances and complexities of environmental justice and how environmental justice impacts us in so many more ways than we often imagine. I also hope that if you're not already supporting uh, the work of, of environmental justice organizations wherever you live, you might find one in your area like the West Virginia Rivers Coalition, which I proudly support, um, to get involved with. So thanks again to Chet for that very uh, important um, and educational conversation. Um, just a little look ahead to uh, our next episode. Um I have pulled together a team of people. You've already heard a little bit about this. Um, Brandon Wood is going to be uh, joining us from the Hey Mom, Everything's All Right podcast. Brandon is going to come on as the full-time co-host here at Accidental Tomatoes on the podcast side. And I'm also really excited to welcome uh, some really 
excellent writers uh, to the blog side of our content site. Um, Jenny Williams, Heather Moore, and Brad Davis. Uh, You know all of them from previous episodes of the podcast, and they're going to be starting to contribute some new content to AccidentalTomatoes.com. And so next episode, um, there's going to be a a conversation with all five of us from what we're calling the A-team, the Accidental Tomatoes team, about the kinds of things that we're dreaming about uh, as far as the content that we're going to be sharing with you all in the uh, months and years to come. As always, if you're interested in the content that we're creating and curating for the Accidental Tomatoes community, you can find us online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes, or just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes uh, on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, and you'll find us there. As always, if you have suggestions or ideas for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear more about, I would love to hear from you. You can find us and contact us again through our website. You can message us on social media, or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Ratings and reviews are one of the ways that other people can find us that generate interest in the podcast to help people connect with our community and to participate in these really important conversations that we're having together. And as always, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.